And yet I have a burden this morning. My great burden this morning is to tell you that this movement and mission to which you are called, it's not merely difficult, it is impossible. It's impossible. Reaching every tribe and tongue and nation and people with the gospel, yeah, that's it's not going to happen. That, that is impossible for us by human means. And heck, it's not even just impossible. It's really, really dangerous. You might even lose your lives on this global cause. And so the great burden is if God doesn't come through for us, if he doesn't provide what we need to finish the mission, mark my words, we might as well just throw in the towel of Christianity. You know why? Because without the Father's power, we will lose our faith. We will be devoured by the devil or we will become so distracted away from the mission that no one will ever hear the gospel and the army of darkness will win. Those are the stakes and they literally could not be higher. And yet again, that's only if God doesn't come through for us. Because if he doesn't, we might as well just quit and join a bowling league. But if he does come through for us and he will come through for us, then that means that the only thing we have to fear in life is fear. And we know that the Father is going to come through because that's the exact thing that Christ prays in our text this morning. You see, just minutes before a gang of thugs come into the Garden of Gethsemane with their torches and their pitchforks to arrest Christ, he prays to the Father here in the upper room. And it was just so astonishing about his prayers that we find out that all of human history is just one giant collaboration by the persons of the Trinity to get people saved. And yet we also find out is that how people get saved is through the loving proclamation of the gospel. That as Christians, we are not merely recipients of God's grace. We are instruments of God's grace sent to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. In other words, if you are saved here this morning, you have been set apart and sent into the world for a sacred mission. That's what it means to be a Christian. And the reason why I'm telling you this this morning is because this morning we begin the first of a five-week series on missions and the Great Commission. And you notice that we're calling the series Impossible and Invincible. And the reason for that is because the global cause of Christ is both of those things at the same time. It is impossible and it is invincible. It is impossible for us and yet for the one who is building the church the one who is invincible, Jesus Christ himself. And all we're going to do in this series is one simple strategic thing, which is what we do every Sunday, which is what we are told to do in the Bible, which is to unfold the sacred text of Holy Scripture. That's it. That's it. All we're going to do is just look at what the Bible has to say over the next five weeks about what about what God is doing in the world. We're going to look at the, the plan of salvation because at the end of the day, God's word is God's means of awakening the passion of missionary zeal. Put it this way, if you want to inspire a whole church like this one, for instance, to be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair, if you want to inspire a whole church like this one, for instance, to give their lives to the global cause of Jesus Christ, whether they stay or they go, you have got to give them a vision, a stunning vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe. And that's exactly what we see in John chapter 17. So let's go to the prayer, shall we? The, the radioactive prayer of God the Son, because the place to go when talking about missions, the beginning place to go is the Trinity and the drama of redemption designed before the world began. Here we go. I don't know if you've got notes or not, but here's where we're headed. This morning, I want you to see from our text three dramatic factors. Three dramatic factors factors 
that motivate and guarantee the global mission of God given to the church. That's where we're headed. Three dramatic factors that both motivate and guarantee the global mission of God given to the church. And so dramatic factor number one, the triune foundation of the mission. The triune foundation of the mission. Now, do not forget where we are in John's gospel. Do not forget. In a matter of minutes, Christ is going to be in handcuffs, being interrogated by the authorities. In six to eight hours from now, he, even before breakfast is on the table, he will be a mutilated lump of bloody flesh hanging on the cross, being crucified for the sins of the world. And yet, what is it that Christ does here on the brink of all of that, while all of that crushes down on his shoulders like an avalanche? What does he do? He prays. He prays. And in verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples. In verses 20 through 26, get a load of this. He prays for you. He prays for you and everyone throughout history whom the Father had chosen to believe, which tells us, although John 17 is only 26 verses long, crammed into those 26 verses is all of eternity and the plan of salvation. And there they are. Christ and the disciples reclining around a table in an upper room in downtown Jerusalem. Their stomachs are full. Their plates are empty. Their hearts are heavy. Christ has just unloaded the most knockout after dinner speech in history. And here all of a sudden the master begins to pray. Look at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and after lifting his eyes into heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Do you hear that? The hour has come, Father. The hour has come. The moment we've both been waiting for before the foundation of the world is here, Father. But the question is, the hour for what exactly? The hour for what? And you know what it is. You know exactly what this is. Not 60 minutes on a clock, but rather the sovereignly appointed time of his greatest achievements. You see, his hour was to be crucified for sinners and then to conquer the grave three days later. That was his hour. Which is no small thing because his sin-bearing death and his grave-defying resurrection was the secret weapon of the entire plan of salvation. This was the key to the entire operation. You see, if you are in Christ this morning, if you have salvation this morning, and I hope you all are, it is ultimately because this hour arrived. This would bring him glory. And in being glorified, he would bring glory to the Father. But notice, notice very carefully what it is Christ reveals in verse 2. Because if you like hearing secrets of national security, you will love hearing secrets of eternal security. Look at the text. I'll start reading in verse 1. He says, the, fa- the hour has come, Father. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Here it is. Since you gave to him authority over all flesh... In order that everyone whom you have given to him, he shall give to them eternal life. Do you hear the plot? Do do you hear the secret plot that Christ reveals here? It is subtle, but so profound. He just said, Father, you have given to me authority over all flesh. Meaning what? Meaning before time, the father gave him sovereign authority over the entirety of the human race. That's what all flesh means. He's talking about people here. But did you notice, did you notice that wasn't the only thing the father gave the son? Because notice in particular the father, what the father gave him. Father, you gave to me authority over all flesh, notice, in order that everyone whom you have given to me, I will give to them eternal life. There, did you see it? Did you, did you see the second gift? 
Not only did the Father give the Son authority over humanity as a whole, gift number one, but gift number two, he also gave to the Son a specific subset of humanity in particular, and to these people alone, the Son gives eternal life. I mean, can you see what Christ is unfolding here? He's talking about a select number of souls, in particular, given to him by the Father, and these alone receive salvation. These alone get saved. And if you are in Christ here this morning, he's talking about you. He's talking about you. You are in the Bible. You are the gift exchanged between the Father and Son in eternity past. And this is everywhere in John 17. It's everywhere. Listen to how Christ prays to the Father. Listen about whom he prays to the Father, starting in verse 1. I'll just read a few and just see what he says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse 2, since you gave to him authority over all flesh, notice, in order that everyone whom you have given to him, he will give to them eternal life. Verse 6, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me. Verse 20, I am not praying for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 24, Father, those whom you have given to me, I desire that they would be with me where I am to behold my glory. Do you hear this? There is a particular people in history, handpicked by the Father, singled out and selected for salvation, and given to the Son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood, and these alone get saved. These alone receive eternal life. Put it this way, there was a Trinitarian gift exchange before the foundation of the world where the Father gave to His Son particular souls from every nation for whom He would die and purchase with His blood. That is the plan. That is history. Because notice again what He prays in verses 9 and 10. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given to me because they are yours. And all the things which are mine are yours and the things which are yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. I mean, do you hear his language? I'm not praying for the world, Father. I'm not praying for them. But I am praying in particular, for those people chosen by you and given to me, they are yours and they are mine and they are ours. And by them, I am glorified. Which means he died for them. They live for his glory. Which is shocking to say the least, to hear this, isn't it? It's just shocking. Because wait, I thought that Christ loved the whole world. Doesn't he love the whole world? Why is he not praying for the whole world? No, no, it's true. That's still true. He does love the whole world and everyone in it. But you see, to make sense out of the Bible and the entire plan of salvation, you must come to grip with the fact that he loves those given to him by the Father in a particular way, in a saving way, dare I say, in an electing way. Because this whole chapter in the entire Bible is absolutely clear. Christ didn't die for everybody, but for nobody in particular. No, he died in particular for those souls from every nation handpicked by the Father and then given to the Son. We sang it this morning. From heaven he came and sought her 
to be his only bride. He came from heaven to seek her. For her life he died, elect from every nation. And you see the name, the name for those handpicked by the Father, the name for this Trinitarian gift exchange that took place before the foundation of the world is what the Bible calls election. It's called predestination. And all it means is that your infinite joy in Jesus Christ was predestined for you before the ages began. And personally, I find it very interesting. If not refreshing, don't you, that with all the controversy surrounding this doctrine that Christ speaks about election in terms of a love gift exchange between the Father and Son before the galaxies were made? Revelation 13.8 says that their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, and they are everywhere in the world. The chosen. And every tribe and tongue and nation and people and campus and workplace and neighborhood and apartment complex. And they are not yet saved, but they will be saved because the Father chose them to be saved. And Christ bought them with his blood so that they can be saved. And they are among you in your life. And you know them. And you see them. And you interact with them. I mean, think of how bizarre it is that you personally know some of those chosen by the Father and given to the Son. And yet they don't yet believe. And yet they will believe because the Father chose them to believe. And all you've got to do is find them by indiscriminately preaching the gospel to everyone. But you see, this has staggering missiological implications, doesn't it? In fact, all true zeal and passion for missions must begin here with the Trinity and sovereign election. Why? Because this is the guarantee. This this Trinitarian gift exchange is the certainty of the success of the global mission of God given to the church. I mean, the fact, the fact that the father chose some from every nation before time and, and gave them to his son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood is the guarantee that God's plan will be accomplished The elect will be saved. The gospel will be proclaimed. The nations will be reached. The darkness will be penetrated. The church will be built. And we know that because of God's plan before time. And so as far as application goes, as far as how to apply something like this, you have to understand this. Rather than kill the urgency to pray and preach to lost people, the plan of God and sovereign election actually inspires more passion to pray and preach to lost people. Why? Because that is our guarantee that our praying and preaching is not in vain. In fact, put it this way, election does not make our evangelism meaningless. Rather, it guarantees that our evangelism can not fail. And for that mission, may God give you strength. May God give you strength. Because mark my words, you're going to need it. Which brings us to the second dramatic factor that motivates and guarantees the mission of God given to the church. Number two, the holy consecration for the mission. The holy consecration for the mission. Because again, like I said at the beginning, that's what it means to be a Christian that it is synonymous with being on a mission. Again, I really hope you understand that what it means to be a Christian is not just the moral improvement of your life, but the joining of a movement as your life. Why? Because salvation doesn't just mean that God chose you to save you, but that he chose you to save you, to send you for a mission. And yet for that mission, what we need is sovereign protection. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
He's describing the chosen. He's describing the disciples and by us through by extension. And look what he says about the disciples and us by extension. Father, I'm praying for them because they're yours. And all the things which are mine are yours. And the things which are yours are mine. And I have been glorified by them. And they are no longer in the world. And I am no longer in the world. But they themselves are in the world. And I am coming to you. In other words, I'm leaving now, Father. I'm coming back to you to be with you. And it will be the sweetest reunion in the universe. But as we discussed, Father, I'm leaving them in the world to carry out the global mission to the world. Which is a weighty thing, isn't it? Why? Because to to live in the world is to be a sheep in the midst of wolves. Lambs in the lion's cage. Goldfish among piranhas. You get the idea. You have to understand to live in the world is a very dangerous proposition for you because as Christ said in John 15, the the world hates you. It hates you. And and if they persecuted him, they're they're gladly going to persecute you. By when he says world, he means the geographical hotspot of hatred for Christ and his representatives. This is a really, really serious issue, which is why Christ prays what he does in verse 11. Look at the text. And I am no longer in the world, but they themselves are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, here it is. Keep them in your name, which you have given to me in order that they would be one as we are one. Do you hear that? The the sovereign work by the Father that we need to finish the mission, keep them in your name. Don't let them go, Father. Don't let them go. With all the power that makes you God, preserve them and protect them and keep them from destruction. Keep them from going AWOL in the mission. Because if you haven't noticed, it's getting a little tense around here. And by that I mean the culture. It's getting kind of hostile. The vultures of the culture are circling around the church just hoping that we are going to die soon. The whole world is under the blinding spell of the evil one. You know that, right? And I'll just have you know that the world in which you live, they want three things from you. The world wants three things from you. Did you know that? Here they are. One, to be silent. Two, to compromise your beliefs. Or three, they want you dead. That's it. You either shut your mouth, you become a liberal, or you die. That is what the world will tolerate from you, and nothing less than that. Why? Because you understand that everything for which Christ stands and everything he represents is a threat to the things that they treasure the most. And so Christ is just anticipating that persecution is coming. And mark my words, it is coming for us. It is coming for us. Maybe the Northeast will get, get it the worst at first, followed by Southern California, the Pacific Northwest. But you feel it, don't you? It's coming here. Maybe we'll be a couple years behind the trend, but it's coming And we've had it so easy here in this Disneyland of Christianity. But the gates of comfort and security are closing in America. And take my word for it, they are closing fast. How many of you will be sitting here when the persecution comes? So what do we need? We need the Father to, to keep us with his power. Because, because notice in verse 12, Christ gives the reason why he prays this. And it's so hauntingly moving. Look what he says. He says, keep them in your name, Father. Why? Because when I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given to me. 
And I protected them, and none of them perished except the son of destruction in order that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Do you see the words he uses? I was keeping them. I protected them. And none of them perished, Father. None of the ones you gave to me perished except for Judas, and that's because it was ordained to happen. He wasn't one of the chosen. But I'm leaving now, Father going to the cross and there's going to be this little window this little crack in the space time continuum when I'm not going to be able to hold them anymore so I need you to hold them and keep them from destruction keep them from perishing keep them from drifting keep them from going AWOL in the mission and you see that's how we know we will persevere to the end that's how we know we will finish the mission the sovereign, indestructible power of the Father who holds us. He goes on in verse 14. Look what he says. Father, I have given to these disciples your word, and the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not from the world, even as I am not from the world. Do you see what he does here? He's explaining our relationship to the world, and it's less than great. Look at the connection he makes. I have given them your word. And the result of that, the the effects of that are, the world has hated them. Do you see that? You stand on the authority of scripture, and that automatically makes you an object of hostility and hatred and even persecution. Mark my words. Mark my words, this is cause and effect. This is logic. This is theological science. You join one team that automatically makes you enemies of all the others. You receive and believe and embrace the word of Christ as the authoritative treasure of your lives, and you will be persecuted. And that is a cost many professing Christians are simply unwilling to pay. So what do they do? They compromise. Try to be accepted by the world. This will not do. This will not do. I've said it before. What you need is lion-hearted courage to speak and broken-hearted compassion to speak it with tears in your eyes and just let the chips fall where they may. Look at the end of verse 14. You are not from the world, even as Christ is not from the world. And so they are going to do to you exactly what they did to him. And so the question is, in light of this dangerous, tense relationship to the world in which you live, how does Christ pray for his disciples who still live in the world? What's the solution? Early rapture? Build a commune like the Amish? live in a cave somewhere, throw in the towel. No, 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 none of those things. Look at verse 15. Father, I am not asking. I am not asking that you take them out of the world. Here it is. But that you keep them from the evil one. Apparently, just because you're likely to get shot is no reason to remove you from the battlefield. Just because you're likely to get burned, there's no reason to remove you from the kitchen. It's it's exactly the opposite. Just because the the world is a hostile and dangerous place is, is no reason to remove you out of the world. You see, when it comes to the Great Commission, safety first is not the motto. Rather, the motto is Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The cost to get the gospel to the nations will be outrageously enormous. People have died for the cause. People are going to die for the cause and they are dying for the cause even as we speak and maybe some of you will die for the cause. May God give you strength. May God give you strength. But look what Christ prays and this this is exactly what we need to finish the mission. Look again at verse 15. Father, definitely not asking that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Meaning what? Not that we are spared 
from all satanic harm or influence that may come our way by no means, because by God's design, he is permitted to breathe his fire and spit his poison. The world is the devil's jungle and he is the lion. Rather, it means that that it's the sovereign work of the father to preserve our faith in and through his schemes that would otherwise destroy us were we left to fend for ourselves. That's all it means. And so the question is, how does the father keep us? How does the father preserve us and there are two ways two means that the father uses to preserve our faith to keep us from evil and to keep us from the evil one two means means number one to protect you and preserve you the father uses his word he uses his word the word of god you understand is the holy vaccination that keeps us from heresy and sin and fear Which if you're not in the word, you are, needless to say, dangerously vulnerable. Number two, the father keeps you through the means of the local church. The father keeps you through the means of the local church. You see, the firewall, you need the firewall of the local body to persevere in faith firm until the end. Because if if you are not affectionately connected to a local church, you are literally indefensible against the God of this world and the powers of darkness. You know that, right? But you see, we are one another's immune system. And the word of God is that which produces the passion to join the most loving and dangerous cause in the universe called the Great Commission. And all of that happens in the context of the local church. But speaking of the Great Commission, notice where where Christ goes in verse 16. Praying about the disciples, and by extension, praying for you. They are not from the world, even as I am not from the world, and yet you are still in the world so that you can give your life to reach the world, which is exactly what Christ says in verses 17 through 19. Look at the text. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Even as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And it should say in your English Bibles, and I sanctify myself on their behalf in order that they shall have been sanctified in truth. So neither Christ nor the disciples nor you nor me are from the world. So what should be our relationship to the world? Retreat, surrender, avoidance, withdrawal, Fear and isolation? No, no, none of those things. None of those things. Mission is the answer. Mission is the answer. Look what he says in verse 17. This is what he's talking about. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And maybe you're thinking, mission, what, what does that have to do with mission? Well, I'll just have you know, that for years and years and years, people have misapplied verse 17. The people have not applied this verse in its missionary context. Christ uses the word sanctify, and so automatically they assume that Christ is talking about moral purification, about ethical purity and conduct. The problem is that's not in the context. And second of all, That word doesn't merely mean moral purification. It means, get this, holy consecration. And to be consecrated, get this, is to be set apart for a sacred purpose. Which means it only exists for one thing. It only exists for one thing because ladies do not wear their wedding dress to cook dinner or do yard work or walk the dog or anything else for that matter. Why? Because that gown is sanctified. It is consecrated. It is set apart for one sacred purpose. To use it for anything else would be to profane it. And so when Christ prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth, he means, Father, sanctify these people for the sacred purpose of being sent into the world in order to reach the world. 
Father, work in their hearts so that the consuming passion of their lives would be the sacred mission to which they have been called. And you know that's what he means because of what he says in verse 18. Look what he says. Even as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. He's talking about mission. He's talking about mission. Because to be saved is interchangeable with being sent. To be saved out of the world is then to be sent into the world. So you have to understand, all your life is, is an extension and a continuation of Christ's own mission to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. Which means, which means, listen very carefully, you abdicate your identity as Christians if you have no meaningful engagement with the world for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel. This means that, that, that the world in which you live is the mission field to which you are sent. That is your identity. That that's who you are. That means in a very real sense that at your classes and in your jobs and in your neighborhoods and maybe even in your own families, you are undercover agents sent into those spheres. But unlike undercover agents, your goal is not to conceal your identity, but precisely to reveal your identity as, as Christians. In fact, you are to blow your cover really early on as on purpose as representatives of Jesus Christ sent by him to save sinners from eternal woe and despair through the gospel. Because to be sure, you look like everybody else, but you're not like everybody else. Why? Because you've been saved out of the world and then sent into the world to infiltrate the darkness, to go behind enemy lines, to stand with your toes on eternity and plead with ruined sinners to be saved. That's why. That's why. That's your mission. That, that's who you are. And so my question for you this morning is, do you own this? Do you own this? Do you own the fact that your identity as a Christ follower automatically means that you have been set apart for a sacred purpose and sent into the world? Do you realize that the global cause of Jesus Christ is the thing that should determine all of your other decisions in life, social, financial, geographical, relational, and marital? Everything bows in allegiance to the cause. But did you notice, did you notice in verse 17 what Christ said is the weapon that produces the passion to embark on the mission? Look, look very carefully what he says. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. See the connection? The, the word of God is that which produces the power and the passion to devote your life to gospel proclamation. We read and we meditate on the Bible, not because it merely makes us feel better, or because it's the Christian version of therapy, but because truth is the nuclear core reactor that generates propulsion, that creates a, a chain reaction in your soul to give yourself to the cause. I want you to be in the Word every single day, not because it checks the box, but because it transforms your soul to see the world the way God sees the world. And how God sees the world is how a missionary sees the world because our God is a global God. Our God is a missionary God. Listen very carefully. You know you have your theology right when your theology begins to make you hear the screams of the damned. When you begin to feel like a missionary on your campuses, at your jobs, 
in your neighborhoods, because that is, of course, precisely what you are. Because to be rescued is to be recruited, to be delivered is to be drafted, to be saved is to be sent. That is the mission. That is who you are. Which brings us now, finally, to the final dramatic factor that motivates and guarantees the global cause of God given to the church. We saw the triune foundation of the mission. We saw holy consecration for the mission. And number three, the eternal destination after the mission. The eternal destination after the mission. Because typically, typically when reading a mystery novel, it's considered bad form to skip ahead and spoil the ending, right? But that's exactly what Christ does in his prayer to the Father. He skips ahead to the end. He, he looks at the eternal destination that awaits the elect, and it is the most loving thing that he could do. Why? Because, because it is the certainty, it is the guarantee that gives us the courage to devote our lives to gospel proclamation. You literally have nothing to lose here. Nothing to lose. The, the happily ever after has already been written because in verses 20 through 26, get a load of this. He prays for you, for you. For you and every person that the Father had ever chosen to believe, and you see it in the text, look very carefully at verse 20. He says, I am not praying for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I mean, this is, this is astonishing. Can you hear what he's doing? He's praying for billions and billions of souls in the future yet to be born from, from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, including the very people sitting in this room. They are predestined by the Father. They are purchased by the Son. They are protected by the Spirit. They are the elect. And many of them, millions of them are not yet saved and yet they will be saved because the father chose them to be saved. And yet, how will they be saved? How are they going to be saved? Through a vision? By a dream? Just on their own, kind of figuring it out? No, no, none of those things. Look exactly what the text said. I am praying for those who will be saved dia tu lagu auton through their word. The word of the apostles. Scripture is the answer. People believe and get saved alone by faith in Christ through the scriptures, either being read or proclaimed. Don't you see the proclamation of the word of God is central to the mission of the church. In fact, without the proclamation of the word of God as the, as the gourmet entree of every ministry, there is no mission. It alone is the means by which ruined sinners are plucked from the flames and awakened from the dead and transferred to the kingdom of his son. But notice, notice this global mission. This is so interesting. This global mission is not about individual witnesses only, but also about a corporate witness, or as Christ calls us, we are one. Look at verses 21 through 23. I'm praying, Father, for those who will believe in order that they all would be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they would also be in us in order that the world would believe that you sent me and I, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them in order that they would be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, in order that they would be perfected into one. Why? In order that the world would know that you sent me and you loved them, even as you loved me. I mean, I mean, that is so staggering. I just, I, I just don't really know how to wrap my head around what he just said. Because the question is, what exactly does it mean to be one? What does it mean to be one? That's the question. Because I'll tell you what it's not. I'll tell you what it's not to be one. It is not at all 
some kind of mushy, sentimental unity with other denominations. We're at the expense of our theological convictions. We all just sort of hold hands and get along. No. A non-theological interfaith or interdenominational dialogue is the furthest thing from Christ's mind. In fact, it is the opposite of that. Rather, to be one together, get this, relates to our global cosmic mission to put Jesus Christ on display to the world. And you can tell, if you look at the text, you can tell whatever it means to be one, it is profoundly Trinitarian. It has to do with the Trinity that they would be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in them, that they would be in us, I in them, and you in me, that they would be perfected into one. What does this mean? Well, because I have minutes, not hours. Let me summarize. To be one together, listen carefully, means that we are a battalion of souls Chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood, who do two things. One, we treasure Christ together in community. And two, we love one another with radical affection, just like the persons of the Trinity. I'll say that again, because you need to feel this. What it means to be one is that we are a battalion of souls, chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood, who do two things. One, we treasure Christ together in community. Two, we love one another with radical affection, just like the persons of the Trinity do with one another. That's what it means to be one. And when we treasure Christ together, when we, when we love one another with Trinitarian affection, then, then, then the world will know. What? What will they know? Look at the end of verse 23. I'm praying, Father, that they would be perfected into one. Why? For what purpose? To what end? That the world would know that you sent me and you loved them even as you loved me. Again, I... I don't know how to wrap my head around that. This is, this is, a, this is an astonishing thing. What, it mean, what does it mean? It means, get this, when we treasure Christ together, when we love one another with radical affection, that is the means God uses to make Christ look beautiful and compelling to the watching world. I mean, do you, do you understand the global mission of what you are a part of? Do you, do you understand the cosmic mission of what the church is? To be one with one another is the corporate display of the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, do you have any meaningful engagement with lost people where they can see and hear and experience the witness about which Christ speaks? And I don't mean merely that you invite non-Christians to church, but of course do that. Rather, I mean, get this, do you weave and absorb lost people into your lives with other Christians so that they can witness the oneness and the undeniable evidence that A, Christ is real, and B, God the Father loves you with infinite affection. Because I'll just tell you, if we do church right, if we do this church thing right, not just Sunday mornings, but all throughout the week, the world is going to look at you like you're crazy. But one thing they will never be able to deny, these are people profoundly loved by God. We're almost done. Notice what Christ says in verse 24. It is the destination after the mission. It says, Father, those whom you have given to me, I desire that they would be with me where I am in order that they would behold my glory, which you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you see this? What I want out of this whole deal, Father, is that those whom you have chosen and given to me, that they would be with me, that they would be with me 
And by that, he means the satisfying throne room of eternity itself. And you can tell his desire for us is not so that he could marvel at us forever, like we were the point of eternity, but so that we could marvel at him forever. That's what he means by his glory. Don't you see what makes all of eternity worth living and sacrificing everything is because on the eternal menu of heaven's delights is the unfiltered glory of Jesus Christ. That is what we're selling. That is what we're preaching. That is what salvation and eternal life is. Not merely improvement of one's better quality of life or turning over a new leaf or adding a little more zing to your marriage. No, no. What we are offering is everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure in Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. And if you have been handpicked by the Father and given to the Son, that is exactly your destination. And so what's my point? Why am I preaching this? Well, I begin a series on missions with John 17 because it is the very foundation for missions. This is the starting point in thinking about missions. All true passion for global missions must emerge from the captivating collaboration by the triune God to save people from every nation because that, you understand, is the guarantee that God is going to win it all in the end. Oh, Lord, we need your help. I don't know what's in anyone's heart. I don't want to presume to know. But I know, Lord, that there are at least four kinds of people. There are the wandering, the weak, the lazy, and the lost. And there are some thriving and joyfully growing there's all kinds here, Lord. And I just ask that this text would be just an unbelievable encouragement to them. Just an unbelievable encouragement. This would inject in our, all of our souls a fresh zeal for your global cause. Oh, help us to see the world as you see the world. Help us to see the world through the lenses of John 17, which would free us and liberate us from so many things that entangle us and hold us back. Oh Lord, let us be recklessly abandoned to your global cause, which is rooted, Father, in the plan, the triune plan, crafted and drafted and designed before time and will come to pass scene by scene exactly as you have designed. And for that, we worship you this morning. And in your son's matchless name, we pray.